Welcome to this second webinar in the Tuesdays with Merton series. My name is Teresa Sandock. I'm a Servite sister from Wisconsin and a member of the board of the International Thomas Merton Society. Before we get to our main event, I want to make a few short announcements. Tuesdays with Merton is sponsored by the International Thomas Merton Society and the Bernadine Center at Catholic Theological Union. The webinars are scheduled to run on the second Tuesday of each month. And now it is my pleasure to introduce you to Reverend Dr. Bonnie Bowman Thurston, a remarkably accomplished human being. Bonnie is well known to the Merton community. She is a founding member of the International Thomas Merton Society and served as its third president. Her works on Merton have been translated into Dutch, German, Italian, Japanese, and Spanish. She has given retreats and lectured on Merton and other topics in the United States, Canada, Europe, and Australia. Bonnie is an ordained minister and served as co-pastor and pastor of five churches, twice overseas. Her church affiliations include the Christian Church Disciples of Christ and the Episcopal Church USA. She is also an award-winning poet and has authored six collections of verse. In 2014, her book, Practicing Silence, was named one of the best poetry books of the year by Hearts and Minds. After teaching at the university level for 30 years, Bonnie resigned a chair and professorship in New Testament and now lives quietly in rural West Virginia. She describes herself as a widow, an avid walker, reader, gardener, and cook who enjoys classical music and loves the West Virginia Hills. Because she not only loves the West Virginia Hills, but lives in them, her internet connection is woefully unstable. For that reason, we have recorded her talk in advance. Bonnie will be with us live after her presentation to respond to questions. And now, here is Bonnie Thurston speaking on Almost As If I Had a Sister, Thomas Merton and Edda Gulick. Good evening. Uh, welcome to the second of the Tuesday evenings with Merton. Uh, I've been asked to have us begin with a brief meditation and prayer. And so we'll do that. I'm reading from the first of Merton's Cold War letters written to Etta Gullick on, uh, in October of 1961. The extent of our spiritual obtuseness is reaching a frightful scale. Of course, there is in it all a great mystery of God whose word descends like rain and snow from heaven and cannot return to him empty. But the demonic power at work in history is appalling, especially in these last months. We are reaching a moment of greatest crisis in this society we have set up for ourselves and which is falling apart. This sounds eerily contemporary to us and it reminds us that we're not the only generation that has faced plague and natural disaster, political upheaval and general uncertainty. And I think that general absurd uncertainty may be the most trying thing for all of us. We don't know how or when things will end. And what Merton reminds us, and to which I think we must cling, is that behind or perhaps beneath it all is the mercy of God who sends rain on the just and unjust and is no respecter of persons. There is in it all, says Merton, the great mercy of God. Mercy, wrote William Shannon in his entry on mercy in the Merton Encyclopedia, mercy is the covenant promise that binds God to us and us to God. 
God's mercy, Merton wrote, in love and living is not an annulment of unpleasant facts, a refusal to see an evil that is really there, to receive mercy and to give it is to participate in the work of the new creation. To receive mercy and to give it is to participate in the act of the new creation. That, in my view, is the call to us now, to give and to receive mercy, to participate in the new creation. God's infinite mercy is the source of our hope the strength of our work, and the end of our work. And so we pray with Thomas Merton in a prayer from Thoughts in Solitude. My hope is in the eye that has never seen. Therefore, let me not trust invisible rewards. My hope is in the heart. My hope is what the heart cannot feel. Therefore, let me trust not in the feelings of my heart. My hope is in what the hand has never touched. Do not let me trust what I can grasp between my fingers. Let my trust be in your mercy, not in myself. And let my hope be in your love. Amen. Uh, I want to begin our talk on Thomas Merton and Etta Gullick with a few thank yous. Um, first, thank you to the Anglican Sisters of the Sisters of the Love of God in Oxford, who gave me a place to stay when I was researching Gullick there. Uh, thank you to Reverend Canon David Knight and Reverend Canon Robert Wright. Uh, students of Gullick's at St. Stephen's College who shared their recollections with me and some class notes from her classes. Thank you to the Sisters of St. Joseph of Rochester who gave me their hospitality and especially to Kathy Urbanic, their archivist, who helped me to read the Gullick William Shannon correspondence and always to Mark Mead and to Paul Pearson at the Thomas Merton Center at Bellarmine University for helping me to get through the Gullick files. What I propose to do in the next half an hour or so is to introduce the Merton Gullick correspondence to say two things about progress in prayer that they corresponded about by way of an, uh, of a, uh, an example of the correspondence and then to give some uh, closing thoughts. And I will say that if you become interested in Etta Gullick, uh, I was able to write two essays on Gullick and Merton, and they are published in the Merton Journal of the Merton Society of Great Britain and Ireland in the Advent 2017 and the Eastertide 2018 numbers of that journal. So writing to Etta Gullick, uh, a year after their correspondence began, Thomas Merton remarked, your letters are always most welcome. I can hardly think of letters I enjoy more. He continued, it's really almost as if I had a sister living there in England. I never had a sister and that always struck me as a kind of lack. The correspondence with Mrs. Gullick is one of the most interesting and extensive of the many in which Merton engaged. It began in 1961 and it lasted until Merton's death in 1968. The correspondence file in the Merton Center in Bellarmine has 129 items, 326 pages. William Shannon editor of the Merton Letters recognized the importance of the material and devoted 40 pages to it in The Hidden Ground of Love. And in gathering up that material, Bill Shannon also 
began an epistolary correspondence with Etta Gullick, which runs to 75 items in the Sisters of St. Joseph archives in Rochester. Writing to Mrs. Gullick in 1984, Shannon said, I think the set of Merton letters to you is the most charming set of all. That being the case, I was really surprised when several years ago I began to pursue Mrs. Gullick and found no secondary material at all on Merton and Gullick. The length and the extent and the context of the letters makes this very odd. Uh, maybe it is because Mrs. Gullick was an Anglican and not a Roman Catholic. Maybe because she's known in the United Kingdom, but not in the United States. Or maybe it's just that obscure foreign women are not of much interest. But in any case, it gave me the very happy work of breaking new ground in a new Merton field. And you will hear a little bit of that research in this talk. Um, if you enjoy the historical and literary voyeurism of reading other people's mail, you will find this an interesting example of an epistolary friendship. Uh, so let me tell you a little about Mrs. Gullick, Etta Gullick, and uh, the Morton correspondence. Uh, Etta Montgomery Gullick, Gullick was born in St. Andrews in Scotland on September the 7th, 1916. In 1935, she went up to Oxford where she earned an honors BA in theology in 1938. And that same year, married CFWR or Rowley Gullock, the university lecturer in economic geography. In World War II, she worked uh, in naval intelligence and after the war, uh, the Gullicks returned to Oxford where they uh, raised their son Charles. She wrote lots of articles um, and uh, began to assist in the 1960s with the training of Anglican ordinance at St. Uh, Stephen's house. She was by all accounts wonderfully hospitable and in fact in his obituary uh, there is mention of the kindness and hospitality of Mrs. Gullick and her powerful but deceptively mild tasting punch. About 1958, uh, Mrs. Gullick's spiritual director, Dom Christopher Butler of Downside Abbey, suggested that she prepare an English edition of the Rule of Perfection by Bennett of Canfield, a 16th century Capuchin. She did that, and in 1960, she wrote to Merton hoping that he would write a preference for the book, which, as it transpired, was never published because Merton let her down. He never got around to writing the introduction. But they did begin a scholarly correspondence that blossomed into a friendship. In addition to sharing her life of prayer, she sent Merton entertaining accounts of Oxford and the family's travels and quipped in a letter of April 1967, you like chatty letters about things. And the correspondence continued until Merton's death in 1968. In fact, the Gullicks visited Merton at Gethsemane in April of 1967. Her last letter to him was in February 1968, and her, his last letter to her was in April 1968. In 1972, Gullick and her husband retired to the Isle of Man, and she died in 1986 after a short illness. Merton's correspondence with her, which was extensive, was more than a conduit from the England of his youth and a way to stay in touch with Europe since she often wrote him long letters from their vacations and holidays in Europe. She was an intelligent and charming interlocutor, a well-educated, well-read woman with an occasionally acerbic tongue with whom Merton also shared not only a lively interest in the spiritual writers of the Western Church, but in Eastern Orthodox Christianity. 
and they were engaged in similar work. Both of them were training young men for the priesthood. In Merton's case, also for monastic life. Merton's assignments as master of scholastics and master of novices at Gethsemane paralleled Mrs. Gullick's work at St. Stephen's House, the Anglican uh, theological college connected with Oxford University. So let me say a little bit about what the two of them were doing before we turn to the matter of prayer uh, in, in their letters. Um, after a decision uh, that monks in simple profession needed a more organized formation program, Merton became the first master of scholastics at Gethsemane in 1951 and taught courses on scripture, liturgy, monastic history, uh, and, and monastic history to the, to the novices and the young professed. In 1955, he became the master of novices and took responsibility for the formation of young men just beginning their monastic life. His conferences followed a two-year cycle on the novitiate, and they were primarily on monastic history and practice, and Pat O'Connell says that they were predominantly practical rather than academic. In a six-page autobiography that Mrs. Gullick wrote for William Shannon as he was collecting the letters, she writes that in about 1965, I started teaching on prayer at St. Stephen's House in Anglican Theological College and later lectured on great spiritual writers. St. Stephen's is uh, a high church or Anglo-Catholic theological college. It's an affiliate of Oxford University. Um, and it is the uh, college in Oxford of a series of distinguished Anglican priests. Um, the priests at uh, the, the ordinance at uh, St. Stephen's house were studying for their general ordination exams. Most of them were preparing for ministry in parish work. And so to say the least, they had lives that were very different from Merton's young monks. Uh, in a letter to Merton on July the 1st, 1961, Gullick explains, the men I teach are practical types without, uh, with comparatively simple minds. I'm not sure what the English meaning of simple is, but I suspect she was not being very complimentary at that point. In the 1960s, her lectures were part of the theological faculties provision um, and her teaching focused on the great spiritual writers and on the practices of prayer. And the two of uh, her students that I met and spoke with in Oxford uh, both remembered a student quip, pray better with etta, which suggests that they didn't take her very seriously. And one of these gentlemen admitted that we weren't terribly cooperative with what she was doing. Uh, one of her students provided me uh, with some lectures that she had presented to the ordinance in the 1960s. I may be mistaken, but if these were characteristic of her lectures, uh, having taught American graduate seminarians for seven years myself, I suspect her young men didn't yet have enough experience in prayer to recognize much of what she was talking about. How one prepares for monastic life and the priesthood in monastic life or for ministry, um, or indeed if prayer itself can be taught, are matters of debate. And these are subjects that appear in their correspondence. They're part of the backdrop of the epistolary discussion of progress in prayer, which gives an example of the kind of energetic give and take that we find in this correspondence between Edigolic and Thomas Merton. So let's think a little bit about progress in prayer from the standpoint of a woman at Oxford who's teaching 
young men who planned to go into the Anglican parish priesthood, and Thomas Merton, the master of novices at Gethsemane. The subject of contemplative prayer entered their correspondence about six months after it began, uh, with a caveat from Merton, who wrote on September the 9th, 1971, I do not think strictly that contemplation should be the goal of all devout souls. In reality, I think a lot of them should be very good and forget themselves in virtuous action and love and let contemplation come in the window unheeded. They will be contemplatives without ever really knowing it. And I feel that the monastery here, those who are too keen on being contemplatives, make of contemplation an object from which they are eternally separated." End of quote. And Gullick wrote a very long reply to this, eight handwritten pages, uh, October the 8th, 1961. She concurs, I'm sure you're right about letting contemplation come in through the window unheeded. If one looks for it, one becomes self-conscious which is surely always fatal. She responds to Merton's assertion that solitude is unavoidable and imperative. Solitude seems to come on one, she says. I think it's hard to escape from. It's less of a possession than most God-given gifts. And she closes the letter by confessing I am overcome with distractions, which no doubt must be accepted with abandon. This is easier in theory than in practice. Accepting distractions with abandon is exactly Merton's advice in some conferences that he gave in Alaska in 1968. What do you do with distractions, he asks rhetorically. You either simply let them pass by and ignore them, or you let them pass by and be perfectly content to have them. If you don't pay attention to them, the distractions won't remain. Similarly, Etta Gullick wrote in a 1966 article on a journal written for Anglican priests entitled The Clergy Review, Distractions may make us think that we are separated from God, but provided they are not followed, this will not be so. We must simply and humbly throw ourselves on God's mercy and not attempt to fight them. Early on in their correspondence, the Merton Gullick letters raised two really important and practical difficulties in contemplative prayer self-consciousness, and distraction. Distractions are the thoughts that fill us when we attempt to pray, and they are inevitable. On June the 26th, 1962, Gullock wrote a long letter that included material on mysticism and interning, which is what she termed introversion in prayer, noting that it's strange to have a kind of union with God and yet so quickly become concerned with the self in the most foolish of ways. Merton thought that distraction in prayer has its taproot in self-consciousness. Self-consciousness is a particularly insidious distraction, especially self-consciousness worrying about making progress in prayer. Writing to Gullock, October the 29th, 1962, Mer Merton noted, there's too much conscious spiritual life floating around us, and we are too aware that we are supposed to get someplace. Well, where? If you reflect, the answer turns out to be a word that is never very close to any kind of manageable reality. If that is the case, perhaps we are already in that where, and we should let go of our hold upon ourself and our will, and be in the will, capital W, in the will in which we are. For Merton, as for Gullock, 
Worrying about whether one is making progress in prayer makes one self-conscious and deflects one from the truth of the presence, the truth of God's ubiquity. In her letter of November 2nd, 1962, Gullick notes, I've got a rather large number of pupils this term. They are a most interesting lot. And she reminds Merton, when one is in the position of having no spiritual life at all, it's hard to imagine stages in the spiritual life. Merton responds, January 18th, 1963. What I object to about the spiritual life is the fact that it's a part, a section, set off as if it were a whole. It's an aberration, Merton writes, to set off our prayer from the rest of our existence as if we were sometimes spiritual and sometimes not. It is an aberration that causes an enormous amount of suffering. Our life in the spirit is either all embracing, or at least it should be. One remembers the dictum of Merton from Thoughts in Solitude, if you want to have a spiritual life, you must unify your life. Life is either all spiritual or not spiritual at all. And then in the correspondence for several years, the discussion of progress in prayer seems to go underground in favor of discussions of classical and contemporary spiritual writers, of current affairs of Gullick's and Merton's respective work, and finally his move to the Hermitage. And it reappears then in Merton's correspondence in a letter of August 1966 in response to her. Merton reiterates his position, writing, the chief obstacle to progress is too much self-awareness, and to talk about how to make progress is a good way to make people too aware of themselves. In the long run, I think progress in prayer comes from the cross and humiliation. And whatever makes us really experience our total poverty and nothingness and gets our minds off ourselves. Gullick replied in August of 1966, I agree with you about loss of self. And she called it one of her themes in her teaching. Her agreement was existential as well as theoretical. She'd written to Merton in January 1962 of her own growth in contemplative prayer, that when she lost the feeling of being self-conscious, God-consciousness took its place. And in a January 1966 article in Clergy Review, she wrote, the soul and its prayer somehow and seemingly naturally get lost in God. In a same journal, one year later, January 1967, she writes, we have to cease being self-centered and become God-centered. This is what losing our life to find it means. For we live more fully when we cease to be worried and concerned with ourselves. In the text of one of her lectures for September 1968, she wrote, self has to be forgotten so that God can be known. Prayer should be an act of self-surrender to God's love. Clearly, the diminishment of self was one of her themes. And on the matter of progress in prayer in August of 1966, uh, Gullick explained that her students wanted books on progress in prayer. Chiefly, I suppose, she wrote to Merton, because it would be unlikely that young, moderate evangelicals would know anything about it. They would not know there was such a thing as progress. This they should know, because even if they didn't progress, some of their flock might, and they would not have a clue." End of quote. 
Clearly, Gullick has in view the future responsibilities of her ordinance, and gently and obliquely reminds Merton that not everyone's day-to-day -day life can be totally directed toward prayer, as, at least in theory, it is in a monastery. Because of her work with ordinands, Gullock raised the question of progress in prayer with Merton, but they both were wary of rigid systems of prayer and progress that was in some way calculated by spiritual benchmarks. Her September 1968 lecture notes record, quote, each of us will have his own approach to God as each of us is unique. Later in the lecture, she says, it is perhaps daring to refer to progress in prayer because there is only progress in loving God. No progress in prayer, only progress in loving God. She stresses the point that methods of prayer will vary with individuals and she speaks of losing the methods. Merton objected to the notion of progress in prayer because he, like Gullick, understood that prayer is a gift and consequently can't be taught. You can receive a gift, you can open the box, but you don't, you aren't taught a gift. Merton wrote in Contemplative Prayer, prayer is not a psychological trick, but a theological grace. It can come to us only as a gift and not as a result of our own clever use of techniques. Each person must find his or her own way or method to bear. Writing to Gullock on June the 15th, 1964, Merton said, I do not think contemplation can be taught, but certainly an aptitude for it can be awakened. It is a question of showing, in a mysterious way, by example, how to proceed, not by the example of doing, but by the example of being. We prayer, we teach prayer if prayer is taught by the way we are in the world with others. For Merton, contemplative prayer was a disposition of attentiveness to God's presence, not mastering a technique in prayer or making progress in prayer according to some excellent traditional or arbitrarily devised system. In an Alaskan conference, Merton said, what you have to do, quote, is to have this deeper consciousness of here I am, and here's God, and here are all these things which belong to God. He and I and they are all involved in one love, and everything manifests God's goodness. Everything that I experience really reaches God in some way or other. Nothing is an obstacle. God is in everything." End of quote. Which I think is something of what is meant by grace in our little meditation at the beginning of this talk. I think Mrs. Gullick would have agreed with Merton. Her lecture notes of September 1968 stress that methods of prayer vary with individuals. In a 1966 article on prayer, she wrote of each person finding the words which suit them best, and quote, how the stillness and quietness which prayer brings to the soul can continue throughout the day, like a kind of gentle background music, which assures us of God's continual presence. God is in everything, God's continual presence. Even in the midst of activity, says Mrs. Gullick, we are not separated from God. And this consciousness of peace and union is a gift which God gives us. So this language of selflessness, of 
not being focused of self, on self, of not worrying over much about making progress in prayer, and of receiving prayer as a gift which is available to us always. These are ideas which both Mrs. Gullick and Thomas Merton shared. So finally, maybe you thought I'd never get here, I come to just a few closing reflections. The last regular exchange of letters between Merton and Gullick were in the autumn of 1967. They were still sending articles and books back and forth to each other. Merton was planning to send her tapes of his talks um, between October the 10th in 1967 and February the 13th, 1968. There were no extant letters between the two. Merton wrote one more time on April the 26th, 1968, explaining it's just impossible for me to keep up with the mail and commending her, her piece on mortification, which I thought was really very sensible and good. So she was still sending him the article she was writing. Merton's last recorded word to Gullick seems eerily relevant. To accept non-consolation is to mysteriously help others who have more than they can bear. To accept non-consolation is mysteriously to help others who have more than they can bear. April 1968, and as we know, Merton died in Bangkok in December 1968. However, his ideas continued to influence Etta Gullick and her work with Oxford Ordinance, one of whom very kindly gave me a copy of a February 1970 handout from Merton, or from Gullick on Merton, entitled Prayer, Thomas Merton's Last Message. As I read it, I recognized that it depended upon the material from Brother David Stendelrast's Recollections of Thomas Merton's Last Days in the West which some of you will remember was published in Monastic Studies in 1969 and then reprinted as Man of Prayer in Thomas Merton Monk, um, collected by Merton's secretary, Confrere, and um, Monk of Blessed Mem Memory, Patrick Hart. Her notes close with a verbatim quotation of Merton from David Stendelrast's article. So that's two years after Merton's death, and it's evidence that Gullick was keeping up with the initial offerings of what now is sometimes called the Merton industry. The Merton-Gullick letters are really wonderful. They are, uh, I, I, I have left out all the fun personal parts so that you can look those up in the letters in the Hidden Ground of Love. But um, they are important, I think, as a detailed, informed, and very literate Roman Catholic Anglican dialogue. Um, the Merton Gullick conversation engages primarily at the level of practice, though they're very, very practical letters to read. Maybe the medium of the letter made it easier for two English raised and educated persons to open up to each other and to be remarkably candid about that most intimate of subjects, our private prayer lives. The theme of progress in prayer uh, with the attention to uh, self-consciousness and distractions that are part of that is only one of the themes that you could trace through the letters. Uh, it would, for example, be fascinating to explore the references to Eastern Orthodox Christianity and to coordinate the letters uh, and material in Merton's letters to and studies of Orthodox theologians. Uh, it would be a very good MA thesis for someone to trace the Merton, Donald Alchin, Etigulic, Orthodox Center in Oxford interplay. There's a lot of material there to be, to be done about. 
So far as I know, Gullick's work on Bennett of Caulfield, which is really very good and quite fascinating, uh, the apparent entirety of which she sent to Merton, languishes at the Merton Study Center at Bellarmine University in 15 files that were transferred from Gethsemane to the Merton Center. Um, again, there is a really good PhD thesis for somebody in um, Gullick's Bennett of Canfield material and the notes that Merton made on it. In the final analysis, the Merton Gullick letters are a testament of friendship between two perhaps unlikely people, uh, a married English Anglican, actually a Scotswoman who married an English professor and lived and um, entertained and taught in Oxford, and uh, Thomas Merton, a Cistercian monk. Two people, two generous souls, both of whom wholeheartedly sought God, and therefore were very serious about the life of prayer and sharing the great gifts and graces of the life of prayer with others, some of whom were perhaps not ready for, or even interested in, the gift that they were trying to give them. A remark in Gullick's letter to Merton of February the 3rd, 1964, perhaps best summarizes their exchange. She wrote to Merton, the gifts of God pass belief. The gifts of God pass belief. And that, I personally think, is a universal truth and a very good place to end this talk. Thank you very much for that, Bonnie. It was uh, enlightening for me. I don't know much about this correspondence. So we have uh, a few questions that will be intriguing to see how you want to respond. The first one from an Angus Stewart, an Anglican priest who sees that self-awareness and spirituality go hand in hand for people. And he asks, should there be a distinction between self-awareness and self-consciousness? Hi, Angus. I know Angus Stewart. Can you hear me? Yes. Can you hear me? Yes. Um, when she was, when they were writing about self-consciousness, it wasn't the kind of self-consciousness that we have in personal development, say our psychological self-consciousness where we're, we're learning who we are and how we respond to things. But um, the, the context, and I'm sorry that I didn't make it clearer, is when you're trying to engage in contemplative prayer, a prayer without words or meditation, um, the problem is that sometimes you watch yourself doing it. It's the self-consciousness of not of, um, not of watching our own responses, but the self-consciousness of being conscious of trying not to be conscious of ourselves in praying. And so that's the kind of thing that um, both of them are worried about as, as a distraction. Now, um, can you remind me just the last part of the, of the question? There were two things that, that Angus... Yes. Should there be a distinction between self-awareness and self-consciousness? Indeed. Self-awareness um, would be, I think, uh, in this context, more a psychological kind of event, uh, and and the other is is more more has more to do with with what happens interiorly in meditation. Does that make sense? Is that clear? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Um, one ask about the the first letter. Did it come from Gulick or from Merton to her? Uh, and how do you think this set up a long appreciated friendship? Well, I think the first letter came from her to Merton. Um, she had done this work on Bennett of Canfield. 
at the request of uh, the abbot. Uh, very extensive work. There are 15 folders uh, that contain that work at, at Gethsemane. And she was hopeful that he would write the introduction to it. Um, I think the abbot encouraged her to, to send the material or to approach Merton about it uh, because, uh, of course, Bennett's writing is about monastic life. Um, so that, that's the first thing. It, the, converse, the, the correspondence began really kind of as a business matter. Uh, and, and of course, anybody who's a famous writer, if you do the introduction to somebody else's book, it gives the book a big oomph, a big help. So, so she was hopeful that that would happen. And really, Merton let her down. He wrote back to her and said, well, I tell you what, I'll take some really good excerpts from the material you've sent me, and I'll have a publishing friend of mine put it together as a little special book, and I'll do the introduction to it. Unfortunately, he didn't ask the publisher first whether the publisher was interested, which the publisher was not. So what happened it, it was that there was an exchange of letters about the Bennett of Caulfield manuscript that Gullick had written. And really, Merton let her down. He never got around to doing it. But in the context of that, um, they began to talk about other things. And they, they exchanged letters, uh, they exchanged articles that, that each had written, they sent each other books back and forth. And that then kind of moved gently into um, a, what I think of as an epistolary friendship. They got to be really friendly. And if you read the letters, they're very chatty. Um, Mrs. Golick writes to Merton about, you know, parties in Oxford and about her holidays with her family and Europe and Merton sends her little, little bits from the monastery. So really they, they, um, they clicked as friends. And that's not surprising because Merton was educated in England. Um, she was a very smart woman uh, and she said some pretty acerbic things about some people that um, that some of us know, if there's anybody listening in from England, there's some interesting things about Donald Alchin, uh, who became a good friend of Bill Shannon's and some of us. Um, so it, it was really quite a, it, it's a very exciting, uh, it's an exciting correspondence to read both sides of because it does deal in, in great and very knowledgeable detail with, with things like interior prayer. But it's also really fun because it's the kind of fun letters you write to friends with whom you're, from whom you're separated. This kind of research to read fun stuff, eh? Pardon me? Well, as I say, I mean, I, I make no bones about it. It's great fun to read other people's mail. I, I spent three or four years reading other people's mail. Eddie Gullock's letters to Merton, Merton's letters to her. It was great fun. This is a question that will be uh, useful for many of us who teach from Chris Premuk. Uh, to young people, how do you communicate the truth of presence, which is God's ubiquity? And then a, 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 correspond, a corollary question, how do you cultivate aptitude for prayer and contemplation among young people? Okay, could you could you give me the first question again? How do you communicate true the truth of presence? Right. Okay, I got that. And then the second. How do you cultivate aptitude for prayer and contemplation among young people? Okay, I think the answers to those. Hi, Chris. By the way, um, uh, I feel like John the Baptist when the Lord came to be baptized. I should be learning from you, Chris. Um, I think that we really and truly, we communicate the truth of the presence of God by the way we are in the world. Um, those of us who have been graced with a sense and a knowledge of the truth of God's presence in everything have to live like that. And they, I, I think young people see it in the way that we deal with them in the classroom, in the refectory, 
when we run into them in the street. We, we are um, carriers, if you will. I mean, sorry, the virus uh, metaphor is kind of um, gruesome at the moment, but, but I think it is a bit like a virus, that, that it, it's communicated person to person, and that the aptitude for prayer is cultivated by being with people who pray. Um, I became a woman interested in developing a life of prayer because I had the great privilege of being with people who were prayerful. Um, some of those people were uh, professors of mine in, in school. Some of them were just ordinary people in the parish that I attended um, when I was in graduate school. And I think that we cultivate an aptitude for prayer by putting ourselves in places, and I would, I would say we put ourselves where God can find us, which is really any place. Um, so we have to dispose ourselves to be found. And so in this day and age, I, I think, and this sounds like an old lady being judgmental, in fact, it is an old lady being judgmental, you have to unplug things. You have to take the earbuds out and, and turn off the devices um, and, and be open to that presence, which is really every place and in everything. Um, sometimes I would talk about it with uh, older people as having baptized eyes, baptized ears, um, baptized tongue. You know, we, we, we take the gift of, of being the baptized um, and use it in whatever circumstance we are to, to tune in to the, to the God vibe around us. But, but honestly, I think it, it, both questions are answered in a way by saying that, um, that we ourselves have to be theotokos, we have to be God carriers. Um, that, that people need to see, have some glimmer of it, some little tiny glimmer of it uh, in, in, a, in another person. Very good. I think Chris will be okay then. Pardon? Chris will Chris, be okay then. Chris, I'm sure Chris is carrying it well. I don't have any question about that. Some of the rest of us, I don't know, but he's okay. This one comes from John Collins. Mm -hmm. Merton? John Collins, yeah. We'll, were Merton and Gullick's interest in progress in prayer life really more about their progress in their own prayer life, or maybe about teaching priests and monks about the development of their prayer life? Yeah, I think really they were both interested, well, both, honestly, both. Uh, first of all, I think the the letters, when you read them together, uh, are indicative of the fact that both Mrs. Gullick and Thomas Merton had, had walked away uh, on the journey or walked quite a long distance on the path of prayer. So they, neither of them were neophytes. They were folks who had experience, who, had, who came together to, to share that experience. And I think they were both really interested, certainly in the early letters. The, the burden of the correspondence is from 1961 to 1963. And in those letters, they're really interested in how to do the thing that Chris Pramuk just asked about. How, how do we um, help young monks, uh, men training for the priesthood, both monastic and, and in parishes, um, how do we help them to develop a life of prayer and to find its beauty and its sustenance and the, the, the joy and glory of it? Um, they were both, in a way, they were both teachers, um, if I can put it that way. Mm -hmm. So the, the, in a way, it was, you know, they were sort of comparing meth methods. How are we going to do this? What's the best way to do this? Um, when I first read the, the letters um, of Merton and hadn't read the Gullick letters, I, I was a little annoyed with Mrs. Gullick. I thought, well, who's this woman who keeps asking him about progress in prayer? And he keeps saying, but that really will make you self-conscious and it will, you know, undercut. 
And actually, when you read both sides of the correspondence, um, I, I really had misjudged her. Um, what she's trying to do is to help the ordinands to develop um, a, a taste for prayer, a desire for it. Good. Thanks, Bonnie. Uh, Catherine Kramer is asking you if you can say a bit more about the quotation you shared, quote, to accept non-consolation is too mysteriously, and that's all she and I can remember. Okay. Um, let me just quickly... Uh, now I'm, I'm not going to try to find it in the text right now, but to, to accept non-consolation is a way of helping other people to, to bury burdens that are too heavy for them to carry. That's the, I think, thrust of this. Is that what you remember as the thrust of that quotation? I, I don't know. I was reading the chat box. So. Okay. Um, uh, the, uh, how naughty of you. I know. Um, uh, the idea is that if we have a time in our prayer when the prayer is dry, um, you know, this was the kind of thing that sometimes people talk about when they use the phrase, the dark night of the soul. When we have a period of dryness or aridity in our own prayer, and we're able simply to live through that, to carry it, to continue a life of prayer, even when we're not getting, you know, the warm fuzzies out of it, but we stay with the prayer. We, we, we turn Godward, even when there seem, it, apparently nothing is happening. There's no feeling of presence, again, to use uh, Chris Pramick's word. In a way, this helps other people carry burdens that are too heavy for them. They see something in us and about the way we are bearing um, our burden or bearing up under a burden. And it helps other people. It's, it's very mysterious. It, it isn't, a, um, it's, it's not very easy to talk about because the transaction is in the realm of grace. You know, I can do this for somebody else, not because I'm wise or prayerful or holy or any of that, but, um, but because I become the conduit through which God can do something for someone else. That's good. Thank you. We're getting as much out of these answers from you now as we did the lecture. That's really cool. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I think this is true. I think that we, those of us who are trying to be men and women of prayer, persons of prayer, um, become then the vehicle or the channel or the conduit for, um, for God's dealing with other people. And I think this is critical, especially now. Gosh, especially now. Especially now. That's it. Yeah. David Sullivan liked that you spoke about ubiquity of God rather than omnipresence. Uh-huh. You think there's a difference? Well, yeah, because I want to say the world is charged with the grandeur of God shining out like shook foil. I'm a real Gerard Manley Hopkins kind of girl. Um, uh, ubiquity means not just, I mean, I'm, I'm uneasy with all the omnis, omnipresent, omni, whatever, whatever. Remember all the omnis that Augustine and or Aquinas and those people Anyway, um, I think ubiquity would suggest that, that we might look for God in places where otherwise we wouldn't find him. You remember the poem in which Merton talks about listening for your name in the stones of the wall? I love that poem because the last thing you would expect ever to, last thing I would ever expect to speak to me was a stone wall. And yet Merton's poem suggests that's precisely where you need to listen. So I chose the word ubiquity on purpose because it made me sound smart on the one hand. Um, but on the other hand, I think subtly the questioner has picked up the difference between presence, which suggests something, a, a kind of um, uh, environment, 
that I kind of move into, uh, as opposed to a world charged with the grandeur of God, that is just every every place we look, there there is potentially the opportunity to see God. Love it. Especially in the ugly places, you know, I mean, I don't think God is, we're nearer to God's heart in the garden than anywhere else on earth, although I'm an avid gardener. I think God is most evident where God's people suffer. Yeah. Michelle Jankanich is wondering, are there references to the visit that was to come by the Gullicks to Gethsemane in 67, planning yes. it? Any information that they discussed during the visit? Yeah, actually, the, the, there's some long letters from Mrs. Gullick. Uh, thank you letters. She's a nice, well-brought-up English lady. Uh, so they're thank you letters. Uh, and he wrote back to, to them and said, oh, I hope they took a picnic to Gethsemane and had the picnic. And uh, he thanks them for bringing it. They thank him for you know, letting them come, and he says um, that that uh, he hopes they will come back another time. Um, there's not, as I recall, I can. I've got a big notebook full of notes on the on the correspondence, but I don't remember that there was in that particular exchange of letters um, much indication of what they actually talked about. Okay, good. And Bonnie, this will be the last question from Shirley France. Did Etta Gulick ever communicate to Merton having had an enlightening experience as had Merton? Um, yes, but obliquely. They were English, remember. Uh, yes. Um, and, uh, and also because uh, if you really are a real mystic, you don't talk about it. You know, if you've, if you've had really deep experiences in prayer, uh, they should be evident in the way one is in the world. And, and, um, and I think there is a certain reticence about speaking about the deepest things of prayer, except with our spiritual director or our close spiritual accompaniers through this life. Uh, or maybe that's just because I'm off the scale introvert and I'm an uh, I'm an Appalachian isolate and uh, you know I just, I just I'm not out there about these kinds of things. But I, having read her correspondence, um, think that she was a woman who did have uh, quite a lot of, of interesting prayerful experiences. She does write to Merton and I, I'll cut this short. I, I don't know whether everybody's looking at their watch at this point, but she has a very interesting experience um, at, at, at several points of feeling physical pain as the result of prayer. And she's, she's trying to figure out the relationship between the prayer experience and, and this quite acute uh, physical pain that she had. But it's hard to sort of ferret what that was about from the letters. But it's pretty evident. I mean, I think everybody has mystical experiences. I mean, we're trained not to talk about it. We don't want people to think we're nuts, you know? Uh, I mean, the first thing a child learns when they talk to a grown-up about a, a wonderful prayer experience is, is that the grown-up doesn't take them very seriously. Um, or if you talk to another grown-up, they might want to sign you up with their shrink to make sure you're okay. So um, it, it's a it's a good question. It's a fair question, and I think that they both were people of deep prayer. I would also remind you that they both talk about the fact that God deals with each of us individually. And so my deepest kind of prayer experience might be a very surface kind of prayer experience for somebody else. Um, that God feeds us according, I, I think, that God feeds us according to our hungers and gives us as much of God's self as we're able to tolerate. Because if God gave us, well, if God gave me all of God's self, I'd be vaporized. I mean, poof, that'd be the end of it. Um, but I but I do think that 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 yes, they had um, deep 
and authentic uh, experiences of prayer. Thank you so much, Bonnie. Thank Welcome. So thank you for forwarding the questions and thank you those of you who ask questions. Bonnie, I want to thank you so much for those deep and uh, wonderful um, insights into the gift of prayer and um, that just the, the, the understanding that prayer indeed is a gift and not something we are taught. Um, I also want to thank the people behind the scenes. Peter yeah. Cunningham, uh, his deputies. Uh, Peter, by the way, helped. Uh, he was the person who, who did the recording of this wonderful <laughs> uh, talk that we heard and was, was extremely helpful to us before and during the uh, presentation. His deputies, Nelson and Amanda at the Bernadine Center at Catholic Theological Union. I want to thank them all for their technical support. Thanks also to Dan Horan, who's a member of the planning committee. He got the recording going for us today. I want to thank Bob Grip, who will be posting the webinars on YouTube, and to Mark Mead, who posts them as podcasts. So they're available in a variety of uh, formats, and uh, it won't get lost. That's one wonderful thing about technology today. We can go back to these experiences. Uh, registration is now open for the November 10th webinar, which will feature a name you've heard today a couple of times, Professor Christopher Pramuk from Regis University in Denver. He's going to talk about what does God's gender have to do with it? Merton's Awakening to the Feminine Divine. And to register for that webinar, go to merton.org slash ITMS. And finally, if you're not already a member of the International Thomas Merton Society, you can check us out at that same website, merton.org slash ITMS. For just $25 a year, you can enjoy all the benefits of membership that are described there. And so for now, goodbye everyone, stay safe, and we hope to see you in November. <laughs>